things heartily to the Lord. Uh, and even I'm sometimes tempted to think that we only worship when we sing. Well, th- this isn't true. This is not what the Bible teaches. Uh, uh, to worship is to ascribe the proper worth to something. I'm going to say that again. To worship is to ascribe the proper worth to something. To quote Donald Whitney, he says, To worship God is to ascribe the proper worth to God, to magnify his worthiness of praise, and to approach God and address God as he is worthy. And we at Emmanuel here, we seek to do this in every element of our worship. In our prayers, we confess God alone as worthy of our affections. When when preachers preach to us, they present Christ as a Savior and Lord to be valued. And when we sing, we ascribe the highest honor and the greatest worth to our triune God. This is all worship. And what I want to emphasize today is is what we're talking about today is, is specifically corporate worship. This is public worship. This is gathered worship. This is not... Uh, what happens when you uh, have your private devotions or your quiet time. This is not what happens on your way to work or as you observe nature unto the glory of God. Those are all good things, but that's not what our topic is today. God promises to meet with his people in a special way in which that is altogether different from the way in which he meets with us in our quiet times. And now let me be clear. God is omnipresent. That means he's he's everywhere. He's omnipresent and will draw near to every person in which the Holy Spirit resides. So if you're you're a Christian and you seek the Lord, God will will hear you. God will meet with you and 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 he's there for you. He's present. But the scriptures teach us us that there's something profound and palpable about when, when his people as living stones gather together and build a temple of worship to him. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. This is what we call corporate worship. This is by no means an exhaustive sermon on the subject, not even close. <laughs> what, 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 what I'm going to do today is just draw a, a few principles from the, from the text before us on the subject. Five principles of corporate worship, and they all come from the first four verses of Psalm 65. Let me read them to you now. The first four verses of Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts, We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. My first point, our our first principle we're going to be discussing is that corporate worship, corporate worship is marked by eager anticipation. Corporate worship is marked by eager anticipation. Look at verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. Other translations say praise awaits you. Oh God. Now a little background on Psalm 65. It's believed Psalm 65 would have been read in public gatherings of God's people in the Old Testament. It's David who writes this psalm. Uh, and it was likely read during certain Jewish feasts. Uh, and this makes much uh, sense of the second half of the psalm. If you read it, the second half speaks to God's bountiful provision to his people. Uh, but the idea in verse 1 is that God's people together are preparing 
a banquet of praise for the Lord. We're preparing a banquet of praise for the Lord. And when you read this psalm, you can sense in the text an, an excitement and joy. Not, there's no dullness to be found in Psalm 65. It's nothing but excitement and joy. Praise awaits you, O oh God. Before God's people worship, there ought to be an eagerness that is in every way appropriate. Exuberance, joy, overflowing anticipation. This is the idea. This is the, this is, uh, uh, the atmosphere described in verse 1 of Psalm 65 that God's people were preparing a banquet of praise for God. There's eagerness and anticipation. Now, now how this principle, I think, looks in each of our lives uh, it will be different. I think, I think for some of us, uh, you know, some of us, we're, we're, we're able to prepare our hearts on, on Saturday evening for church. Uh, we're able, we got our clothes laid out. We know what we're wearing tomorrow. We, we have the text that's already on our mind. We've been praying through it. We've been praying for the preacher and the songs we happen to know. Uh, some of us were able to do this early on Sunday morning. And uh, for some of us, it, it's everything we can do just to get through the doors on Sunday, right? Uh, it's everything between our hectic lives and schedules and, and, and children and, and, and the chaos of life. It, it's everything we can do just to, to get here on Sunday. Well, well, let me encourage you. When we gather corporately, we encounter the living God. Praise awaits God. He is to be worshipped with fervor and passion in public gatherings. This is why we have a call to worship at Emmanuel. Uh, We want to prepare ourselves to encounter God in a way we don't throughout the week. I hope when you come to Emmanuel, as we sing, as we pray, as we, as we listen to preaching, uh, that you are excited to see what God does in our midst. We worship an active God who draws near to us in worship. This is an amazing thing. God is active and he draws near to us when we approach him in worship. This is the first principle we see from our text. Corporate worship is marked by an eager anticipation. Secondly, corporate worship is marked by an appreciation of God's work in the world. Corporate worship is marked by an appreciation of God's work in the world. Verse 2. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. It's uh, widely believed by scholars that, that the all flesh referred to here is a reference to the Gentiles, uh, to, to the peoples. Uh, this is a, a common expression you see in the Psalms, which refers to those people who are not Jews. And uh, I want us to appreciate the significance of this. Let's consider the context. It's David who writes this psalm, right? King David is writing this psalm. And remember, at no point in Israel's history was the nation of Israel ever a major military power. At no point in Israel's history were they ever a major military power, nor, especially at this time, were they a significant cultural presence in the world or religious influence in the world. At this point, at the, at, during the time of the writing of Psalm 65, Israel did not have significant influence in the world. By no means did they, did they eclipse the glories of Egypt or Syria or, or Greece or Rome, not even close. Yet, uh, I want us to consider the great deal of faith it would require an Old Testament Jew to say this, O oh, you who hear prayer, 
to you shall all flesh come, or to you shall the, shall the Gentiles come. Remember, the, the spiritual landscape outside the borders of Israel would have, would have been nothing but, but godlessness and idolatry and debauchery and, and, and darkness. That would have been the landscape. Yet, David has the faith to say to God, O Lord, to you, the only one who hears prayer, the only one who hears us when we cry out to you, the one who saves us, to you shall all flesh come. To you shall the Gentiles come. David has faith, and what we can see here, David has faith that a day would come when the Gentiles would approach God in prayer. That God would in fact save the Gentiles and graft them in. This is a significant thought we see throughout the Psalms. I want you to turn over to Psalm 67. It's just, uh, it should be a page or two over. Psalm 67 is known as a great missionary psalm. Listen to the first five verses. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. You can see eager anticipation right there. Verse 2, that you that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples, this is the Gentiles, with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. In David's day, to say, Lord, to you shall all flesh come would require tremendous faith. Well, brothers and sisters, how much more can we know that God is working throughout the world? We have 2,000 years of Christendom in hindsight. We know, we know that Christ has come into the world to save peoples uh, from all over the world. We can see David's hope and have seen David's hope in many ways come to fruition. We know the work of salvation God has accomplished and is accomplishing in the world. And this is my point. As we gather publicly for worship, to worship the Lord, we must not be indifferent to what God is doing in the world. Amen? We must not be indifferent to what God is doing. He is saving countless of millions upon millions for, to his glory. We must revel in God's sovereign purpose being carried out throughout all the nations. Literally, think about this. This Lord's Day morning, there are millions and millions of Christians praising the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is an unbelievable thought. We know it's not just here. It's not just here, is it? No. We know, think about it. our sending church, Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Mebane. They are about an hour up the road in Mebane, North Carolina, a gathering of a few hundred people. Are, they're worshiping right now the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They're drawing near to him, to the God who hears prayer. Northwest, we can hear them <laughs> above. They're drawing near to the Lord in their singing, and God is hearing them, and he's going to meet with them. Who do we, who do we pray for this morning? We prayed for Emmanuel. We prayed for who else? Calvary. Calvary, down the road. Calvary Baptist Church. Persecuted brethren in Saudi Arabia are worshiping the Lord right now in spirit and truth. We cannot be indifferent to the cries of the saints around the praise that is approaching the Lord right now and throughout this week as, as different public gatherings gather to worship the Lord Corporate worship is marked by a keen awareness and appreciation of God's work in the world. 
Thirdly, corporate worship is marked by an awareness of sin. Look at verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. It's verses like this one that inspire us to have a prayer of confession and assurance of pardon within our services. Uh, it might seem odd to you. Um, it sometimes seem, might seem odd to us that... that uh, might seem inappropriate for when God's people gather that they consider their sin. Um, why why aren't, aren't we supposed to be joyful and, and, and happy and, and, and overwhelming with praise? Uh, shouldn't that be the attitude when, when we gather for worship? Why, why are we thinking about our sin? That just brings us down, right? Uh, well, why does David do so? Why is, why is David uh, thinking about his sin in this, our text before us? Look at verse 3 again. He says, when iniquities prevail against me. Uh, kids, do you know what it means to prevail? Do you know what it means to prevail over another? Adults, do you know what it means <laughs> to prevail? Uh, it might surprise you, but when I was a kid, I actually liked to wrestle other kids. I liked to wrestle my, my siblings. I liked to uh, wrestle if there was a neighbor my size. I'd wrestle him. Uh, if there, uh, I liked to wrestle my dad. Well, if you saw two people wrestling... Uh, fighting, fighting each other, and, and one begins to get the upper hand on the other, one begins to get the advantage over the other, you would say, hey, th- hey, that guy's prevailing over the other guy. That guy's prevailing over this person. Well, this is how David describes his sin in verse 3. As David approaches God in worship, uh, he's approaching the God for whom he has prepared praise, uh, for whom he knows will work among the nations, Uh, for whom we know David knows as a holy God, he can't help but think about his sin. He takes inventory of his life, and he is finding his sins are prevailing against him. They are pervasively attacking his conscience. He is discouraged. What what exactly, precisely, what what precise sin is going on in David's head, we, we don't know. Uh, Perhaps he is aware of his sinful actions throughout the week, and he just can't forget them. Uh, in the assembly of God's people, he just can't forget about his sin. Maybe, maybe he's reminded of the countless ways he falls short or the ways he's prone to distraction and to wander from the Lord. And I would say, add that this is an experience, I think, we don't just see in this text. We see this throughout the Bible, right? Uh, think of Job at the end of, uh, of that narrative when he's confronted by the Lord. He can't help but see the contrast between him and God and he confesses his sin. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Not, a, not, a, uh, not necessarily describing a church service, but what, is Isaiah, what happens in Isaiah 6? He beholds the, the Lord in glory. Holy, holy, holy. That's to the person he sees. And what, how, does David, how, does, how does Isaiah respond? He says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. This isn't a foreign concept. When we encounter a holy God, our sinfulness is unavoidable. Brothers and sisters, Emmanuel, is this foreign to you? Is this foreign to us? Are we not burdened with our sins today? 
I know uh, when I gather with God's people for public worship, I'm keenly aware of my sin. When I consider God in his glory and holiness, I am reminded of the numerous ways I fall short. The ways I've mistreated my wife, the ways I fall short as a son, the indifference with which I treat my coworkers and, and lost people, my lack of affection and passion for God. I can't help but think of my sin when I come to worship a holy God with God's people. And I would argue that this is a normal experience in, 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 in the lives of believers. And I think that this is something appropriate for us to feel. At this point, you might be thinking, thank you, Zach. <laughs> thank you for reminding me of how much of a failure I am. Thank you for reminding me of my sin. You're a real downer. Well, this is not where our text ends. It's not where our text ends. It's not where verse, three's, where, where verse 3 ends. Look at verse 3 again. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. You atone for our transgressions. God covers our sin. Amen? God covers our sin. God has provided a way of reconciliation with him. When David joined God's people in worship, he was aware of his sin, yet he had the hope that something would be done about his sin. He had a, a, a strong hope and assurance that something would be done about his sin. And listen, not done by him. No atoning of his own. But he knew that God himself would atone for his transgressions. And here again, don't, don't we have a clearer lens on this? As New Testament believers, we understand this. We know that it is the blood of Jesus Christ it's the only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we can approach God. Children, what does the song say? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We know that we, we have known and appreciate that we are sinners saved by grace. And we understand that it's not our works that make us right with God. We by no means earn our way to heaven. Yet practically... How often do we not approach God because of our sin? Either in our private worship or, or what I'm talking about today in corporate worship, in public worship, in church. I think we're tempted to read verse 3 like this. When iniquities prevail against me, I wait at home until I feel ready to worship God. When iniquities prevail against me, I wait until I feel I've built up enough righteousness to approach God. I know I've definitely felt that way. Or maybe some of us think what, when iniquities, when our sins prevail against us, yeah, I'll, co I'll come to worship, but uh, I won't heartily enter in. I can't heartily enter in. No, when iniquities prevail against me, you, O oh Lord, atone for our transgressions. God has provided a sacrifice for our sins. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. When we consider how sinful we are, it is our tendency to let our feelings dictate our behavior. What we ought to do is to temper our feelings and affections to the objective truths of Scripture. If you are a repentant believer, if you are sincerely repentant for your sins... God atones for your transgression, and he wants you to meet with him. He's ready to meet with you in worship. 
He's ready to meet with you in your life and to forgive your sins, but he's ready. He wants you here, and he wants you to heartily enter in and engage in worship with his people. When iniquities prevail against us, he atones for our transgression. This is a promise. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. These are objective promises that should inform our affections, that should inform our feelings, and they're promises that we can take to the bank. When iniquities prevail against us, O Lord, you atone for our transgressions. This brings me to my fourth point. Corporate worship is marked by a sense of privilege. Corporate worship is marked by a sense of privilege. Let's look at the first half of verse 4. It says, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Every believer, every believer should feel privileged to be a believer. Every Christian should feel privileged to be saved by the grace of God. It's elementary. The Bible teaches us this. Uh, we're, we're nothing but sinners and deserve rapid, and God has saved us. Salvation is a gift of God. It's not something we accomplish for ourselves. The sense of privilege that we've experienced salvation is a biblical idea, but it's not what this text is talking about. This text is not talking about mere salvation. The text does not say, blessed is the one you save. Look at verse 4. It says, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. David is saying, blessed is the one who worships with your people. If you are a Christian person, worshiping with God's people today, you are blessed. You are blessed. You ought to feel a sense of privilege. Of course, you ought to feel a sense of privilege for being a saint. One God who has chosen from before the foundations of the world. Praise God. Yet you should feel an even deeper sense of privilege that God lets you worship with his people. You should feel even a deeper sense of privilege that God lets you worship with his people. Um, I thought of, of a way to, to illustrate this a little bit. This might be helpful to you, might, might not be. But, but imagine that, that you're a child and imagine um, further that you're, that you're an orphan. Uh, you, you, your, your biological mother and father are, are out of the picture um, and, and you live in an orphanage. And imagine that uh, a, a rich man of good character, a righteous man with several children, comes and adopts you. You are now legally his son. You live in his house. You eat his food. He provides clothes for you. You experience the bare minimum benefits of being his child. Would you feel privileged? Yes, of course. I would hope you would feel privileged. You would definitely would feel privileged. You were an orphan before. You were lost. And now you have a father, and you have the legal benefits of being his son. You have clothes. You have food. You have a roof over your head. You should feel privileged. Well, imagine that your new father plans a wonderful family vacation. And he only takes his kids on this family vacation. He doesn't take just anybody. And the time for the vacation rolls around, and you join your new siblings, and, and your heart is overwhelming. Your heart is overflowing with, with love and affection towards your father. Not only did he adopt you, making his, you his son, but he allows you to partake in the most intimate time of fellowship with himself and with his children. I think this is the idea David is getting at in verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. David feels such a strong sense of privilege, and I believe every believer, Christian, you should feel this privilege 
to when you worship with God's people. He's chosen you, and he wants you to come here to worship him. I don't have uh, the time to belabor the point, but I, uh, I think this is something that's been, been lost in churches in America, uh, this, this sense of privilege that we have to worship the Lord with his people. Uh, I wonder what would be different about our church, Emmanuel, if we took this principle more to heart. I wonder how I would behave differently. Would I uh, freely and joyfully enter into worship? If I, if I understood this sense of privilege, would I, would I more humbly serve the Lord in quieter ways? Would I criticize less? I am a sinner, and we are all sinners that deserve nothing but alienation and wrath. But God has chosen us and brought us near to dwell in his courts. Brothers and sisters, this leaves no room for pride. This leaves no room for priority over others. This this leaves nothing but thankfulness that we get to partake in the goodness of God's house. Uh, uh, one of my favorite hymns, we'll be singing it uh, after, after the sermon, uh, is How Sweet and Awful is the Place. And uh, one of the verses gets at this, this, this idea of privilege, I think, very well. It says, While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankfulness, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest, Lord? Why did you choose me? Thank you, Lord, for letting us come and worship you. Now this brings me to our our last principle. Corporate worship is marked by delight and satisfaction in God. Corporate worship is marked by delight and satisfaction in God. Look at the the last of verse 4. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. We see here a longing and prayerful expectation uh, with God. A a longing and expectation. Lord, we're going to come and worship you. We're so thankful that you let us come. And Lord, we know we're going to be satisfied in in your presence. We're going to be satisfied as we worship you. I asked uh, this morning... As I open, why do God's people gather? And, and we, we gather uh, as, as a church to meet with God. That's, that's why we're here. Children, you might have wondered in the past why, why your parents always go to church. Why they always take you to church. This is something I thought about a lot growing up. <laughs> some, of us, some of us are used to going to church two, three, four times a week every time the doors are open. I used to think my parents were obsessed. <laughs> and I know that the world thinks that we're obsessed, that we're crazy, that how, we, how often we get together. Well, well why, why do we do this? Well, well, as I said it before, we, we gather to meet with God. Well, why do we gather to meet with God? Why do we want to meet with God? We want to meet with God because we love God. And we have come to know that it is God alone who satisfies. It is uh, God alone who is the only source of true joy and lasting satisfaction. Uh, I can say from experience, um, a little bit of experience, if, if you're not a Christian, uh, you will not be satisfied with the things of the world. And I can say from my experience so far um, in this life, even, even good things, 
um, cars, houses. These are things the Lord provides. Even the best things, marriage. Uh, I'm not a father, but I know that's a gift from the Lord. Uh, these are good things that the Lord provides. Well, well, they don't bring ultimate satisfaction. It is God alone who brings lasting joy and fulfillment. And if you're a Christian, you have found this to be, you have found God to be your treasure, haven't you? You have found God to be your ultimate source of satisfaction. And listen, it is in his house that he richly reveals himself himself, and satisfies our souls. When we gather for public worship, we are to delight in God. And we are to be, have the expectation that we are going to be satisfied when we worship with his people. I think we see this most fully in our singing. Singing has always stood out to me. I think if you look at it with, with, with no presuppositions or as, as little as possible, it's, it's very odd that we just sing to this one person over and over and over again. Why do we do this? Well, I think one, we're commanded to. And if you don't sing in church, uh, let me encourage you with God's word. God's word commands you to sing. God's word commands you to sing to him. But most of us don't find that a burdensome command, do we? Most of us can't help but sing to the Lord. And you know what? We're not the first church to do it. <laughs> we can hear our brethren upstairs singing. We can hear, if you walk into any church in Winston-Salem, I guarantee you 10 times out of 10, you're, there's going to be some sort of singing that day. People, Christian people sing. If you're a Christian, you sing to God. Churches sing. They've been doing it since before the time of Christ. God's people have sang. And this is something that's always stood out in my memory. When I was a kid, I was a child before I was converted, uh, singing in church really stood out to me, uh, mostly because uh, I was really, I'm really close with my dad. and uh, I would sit next to my father in church, and my dad sang. Uh, he would sing in church, and he would sing loudly. And uh, some of you know my dad, but I can tell you he's not a musician. He's by no means a talented singer. Uh, in fact, he's probably a little bit tone deaf. <laughs> and uh, he's also not the type of guy, if you know him, that would strike you as a guy who really would enjoy singing. He doesn't sing in the car much. Uh, yet, when, when we would gather in, in, in church, he, he would worship the Lord by, by singing to him. And I wondered, why, why, why does my dad do this? Why, why, why does he sing? And what I could soon, uh, what I come to perceive more and more was that this was because my father loved God. It was because my father loved God and I could perceive that he had been saved by God's grace and he found his joy in the Lord. He delighted in the Lord and he was satisfied in the Lord and he expressed this in his singing to the Lord. And as a young boy, as a boy who did not yet know Christ, I wanted that joy. I wanted that same joy that my dad had, that I could see the hundreds of other Christians in that sanctuary had as they worshiped the Lord. I wanted that same joy, and I wanted to be satisfied. If you're not a Christian here today, don't you want this joy? Don't you want this joy? If you're not a Christian here today, don't you want this same joy? I'm here to tell you today that you can have it. You can have the same satisfaction in the Lord. If you repent, if you repent of your sins, 
sincerely and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you. He will save you and he will give you true joy. If you ask the Lord to forgive your sins and put your faith in the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you can have all the benefits of being his child, all the benefits of being a child of our Heavenly Father, and all of the benefits of gathering with his people and worshiping him. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that your word would move in power, God. Lord, we pray that that I pray that your 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 children here today, that your uh, Lord saints will be blessed by your word today. And God, I pray for for lost among us, Lord, that you would forgive their sins, Lord, and that they would cry out to you. And Lord, that they would find you as the ultimate source of satisfaction, God, that they would find you to be a treasure. God, we pray your blessing on the preaching of your word. God, be with us now in our singing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.